Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm Virginia Prescott. It's Georgia Today. Discussions of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act are being revived on Capitol Hill a year after Floyd was murdered. It's a reform bill that would ban chokeholds and end racial and religious profiling. It also eliminates qualified immunity for law enforcement and mandates data collection on police encounters. Proponents say the bill passed by the U.S. House in March aims to address systemic racism and bias and build trust between law enforcement and communities. Public trust is a priority for Lou Deckmar, a law enforcement veteran of 44 years. He's been chief of police in LaGrange, Georgia, since 1995. As the LaGrange police chief, I sincerely regret and denounce the role our police department played in Austin's lynching. Lou defied Southern police stereotypes a couple years back when he publicly apologized for his department's role in the 1940 lynching of Austin Calloway a black teenager accused of assaulting a white woman. Both through our action and our inaction. And for that, I'm profoundly sorry. It should never have happened. Chief Deckmar says he's not so much reform-minded, but evolving and adapting his force to an era when police are not crime fighters, but social workers with guns. Today, some bold initiatives in policing in LaGrange, Georgia. What is the most obvious way that the job has changed since you've been in LaGrange? Well, I think it's been a uh, continual evolution since uh, the 70s when uh, there was a a recognition that uh, we had to do better in ways of uh, training, uh, in ways of uh, selection, a recognition that uh, what we really are, are kind of unbudsmen for a lot of social issues because we deal continually with those individuals that uh, are either involved in homelessness or mental illness, domestic violence, uh, situations impacted by poverty, unemployment, housing, uh, medical issues. Lou Deckma took an oath to protect everyone. Much of crime is impacted by social issues. So he's partnering with dozens of local organizations like the ARC, a homeless and substance abuse center. And so about 10 percent of what we do results in an actual enforcement action where somebody is taken into custody. Most of what we do is uh, some form of service uh, dealing with people and sometimes, uh, you know, the, the worst parts of their life and uh, and helping them through either mediation, referral, uh, hooking them up to other resources. So I think with each passing year, that role continues to be emphasized. And that's particularly true uh, as we see missed opportunities from uh, other agencies or services uh, that aren't funded. And mental illness, of course, is probably uh, the best example. What's an example of how your force deals with mental illness? No, we have one person in our jurisdiction that we've dealt with 70 times in the last three years that's affected by mental illness. And uh, if the occasion comes where 
there's a bad outcome because of the use of force, that's going to be the focus. Not all those dozens of times we successfully resolved the immediate issue and in some cases got them to a, a medical facility only for there to be inadequate resources to address these issues long term. So that's interesting because the whole conversation in this year, the pressure, the protests about police reform or abolish or defund the police, diverting funding from police departments into social services for for homeless people, for people who are mentally ill, for example, to cut down on the number of arrests. What I'm hearing from you is that you're actually serving that role on some level. Oh, yeah. I spend most of my time emphasizing our partnerships. Uh, looking at our policies, looking at our training. Community policing, I can define in one word, and it's partnerships. Uh, We have over 70 relationships with other government entities, faith-based resources, and nonprofits. LaGrange now stands as a model for community policing across the nation. The key, says Dekmar, is trust. He helped change the life of 43-year-old David Mixon, a prisoner on work release when they met. He just told me that he would help me find a job when I got out. After 20 years behind bars for armed robbery, Mixon is now working as an animal service officer. Oh, I'm grateful. Every time I see him, I thank him. We deal so significantly with with our partners and with the, the variety of social issues that Four or five years ago, we took a police officer position and turned it into a caseworker position. And so now our caseworker uh, maintains and takes advantage of all those relationships to help our officers address these calls when they identify individuals in need. So officer goes to the scene, realizes, you know, holy smokes, this person needs a lot more help than I've got time to give. So they'll make a referral to our caseworker. Uh, and then our caseworker will follow up and hook them up with services. Everything from housing to food to medication to social security to getting the driver's license, homelessness, uh, mental illness. um, It's just a host. And so, you know, I'm all for realigning the police, but let's set up these services and then you've got to have them available 24-7 and then let's do an evaluation and assessment and uh, see whether or not there is a decrease in calls for service. And if there is, then I'll happily modify my budget uh, to reflect the activity that this new lane that's been created for me uh, is now available. And the reason that we often see these uh, issues go to the police is because we're the only government agency that you can call 24-7 regardless, and we show up. That's going to be the, I think, challenge for those jurisdictions that are cutting police before they have these services standing in a way that's going to address the issue of timeliness. Because folks aren't in chaos at, at three in the afternoon, they're in chaos at three in the morning. So that's you looking at the big picture. How about your force? How are they feeling in a year when a lot of mistrust? especially based on use of force, the disproportionate use of force on people of color. People here in Minnesota 
are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. Arrest the cops. Charge the cops. Charge all the cops. Charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. How do they feel about being that topic of conversation, especially in a way that wants to diminish or do away with them? Well, and, and that's interesting. I think what's been showcased by the media and others is those jurisdictions that have citizens calling for defunding. I don't think it's coincidental that these are the same jurisdictions that don't appear to have broad community support. When rocks and bottles are being thrown at police around the country, Uh, citizens are throwing calories at us. I mean, every day they're bringing food in. They're buying our officers meals. They're thanking them for uh, their service. I think those communities that are having the difficulties is because a lack of accountability when there's uh, outcomes that should be challenged as it relates to their officers' behavior or performance. I think that those communities that that don't enjoy uh, a trust with their police agency they that's playing out in the frustration that you see in the call for defunding the police. Both Seattle and Atlanta police chiefs agree. Reconciliation starts by talking with the communities they serve. For Chief Bryant, rebuilding that trust is deeply personal. Our community that we serve have to trust our police departments. It's impossible to do it without transparency. It's impossible to do it without changing your policies. You have to do those things. And trust doesn't buy a pass for the police department if there's a controversial issue or a controversial use of force. What it does do is it buys you time to get the facts so that you can explain what happened and why it was justified or what happened and how it shouldn't have happened and what you're going to do to prevent it going forward. And too many of these cases we've seen where the officer's actions upon analysis uh, were justified, but the police didn't get the benefit of the doubt because the community doesn't trust them. And that incident was just one of a book of incidents in a library full of them that the the community uh, felt like was wrongly handled. What are some of the programs or ways that you have tried to create a system of trust with your community? Well, at the point that people trust you, then they start sharing with you what they think is wrong, you know, what they think is unfair. And then you have to look at it because, you know, police officers, we we like things black and white. It's the law or it's not the law. And life is not that clear. And I think the challenge for contemporary policing is to address public safety concerns not as a club to beat people up with. Now, I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. Car care program. Somebody's got a broken taillight, a broken headlight. Then it depends on each officer's standard, who gets a ticket and who doesn't. So you get stopped, you get a warning. I get stopped, I get a ticket. And then we talk to each other and I'm wondering, how come I got the ticket and you didn't? And if there's race involved, the assumption always is that uh, because I'm a marginalized member of a community, that I got it because, you know, the police aren't supportive of those communities. And so uh, we went uh, several years ago to all of our parts stores in the city and said, hey, if we come up with a coupon, will you give a 10% discount for uh, a part? 
when we stop somebody for a broken headlight, taillight, tag light, whatever it is. And they said, sure. So we made it our policy. You stop somebody, you introduce yourself, you explain to them as a courtesy, you just want to let another get a headlight out, you give them the coupon, says here, this will give you a discount. It totally changes the dynamic of that traffic stop. The number of comments, including postings on our Facebook, uh, particularly African-Americans who say that they were expecting one thing uh, and they were pleasantly surprised uh, at the outcome in dealing with our officer. So that's why we arrest somebody that, you know, lives paycheck to paycheck and uh, they go to the county jail. They may sit in jail for two days if they can't make bond. And if they're arrested on Friday and they sit there two days and they had a job on Saturday and they know show and now they've lost the job, we've just introduced a real chaotic event into that person's life and their family if they've got a family they care for. We got permission from the court. And so now we tell folks, you know, we're going to place you under arrest, cooperate with us. We'll take you down to the police department instead of the county jail process you, and you can sign the ticket and be gone. So now it's become a partnership. They work with us. Instead of going to jail, they're going to get released here in a short period of time. We just got to do some paperwork. Those are just some of the initiatives. But it gives you a sense of, let's look at what we do. And then are we doing things that, as a result of our involvement, leave things better? Or are we complicating already a uh, chaotic uh, situation or a bad situation and making it worse? Coming up, do Chief Duckmar's initiatives affect crime rates in LaGrange? We'll find out when Georgia Today continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform. It's Georgia Today. I'm Virginia Prescott. Calls to defund or abolish the police erupted during last summer's widespread racial reckoning protests. The next step would be defunding the police departments. When you defund the police departments, you take parts of those budgets and you send them to social services within communities. Those slogans subsided over the fall election cycle and are losing support as crime goes up across the country. Defund the police right now is absolutely positively insane, and to me, it was a gimmick. Regardless, public trust and expectations of law enforcement are evolving, especially as data reveals that Black people are far more likely to be targets of traffic stops, searches, and of police violence than whites. Lou Deckmar, chief of police in LaGrange, Georgia, aims to keep those interactions from creating chaos in the lives of people who can least afford it. I asked him whether his initiatives have had an effect on crime in the city. Oh, yeah, and I can show you the numbers. I mean, as this philosophy evolves, you see the numbers go down on traffic citations. You see the numbers go down on arrests. You also see crime go down. So these are very measurable. And I think the the police chief's job or the department head's job, particularly as it relates to enforcement, 
is narrowing that discretion as much as possible and providing options. Because if you have a wide berth of discretion, then you're going to have a wide berth of outcomes. And people are going to scratch their head and say, I don't understand why I was treated differently. Well, we have lived through a record year for homicides and violent crime, which historically that's resulted in more crackdowns on minor crimes, so-called quality of life crimes and use of force by police. Policies that many people and data sets find do target people of color, especially. So how do you talk with your force about racism and policing, which can become part of that kind of crackdown culture? Well, you have, you know, part of developing, you know, and you use the word culture, and, you know, culture is the personality of the organization. And if you have a culture that understands service, that understands that, you know, we're uh, given authority over other people's lives and to use that authority in a way that is not only legal, but also wise, then you don't have to deal uh, with those kind of issues. And the way that you create that culture, again, is through policy and training. And the other part of it is transparency. We've had mandatory recording. That is, officers have to record every encounter with a citizen um, for almost 20 years. If you have an encounter with a citizen and it's not recorded, then you lose a day's pay. We suspend you. And you don't have to do that many times before folks understand that you're very serious about that. And uh, and the fact is, all individuals in policing come from the community or come from a community, and they're no different than, than the folks that they deal with. I mean, we have the same challenges in our family. We have the same challenges uh, in relationships in, in our neighborhood. I, I think there's a lot more apathy subscribed to the police than there really is. Uh, what I find your police are, uh, in fact, very concerned about the people they serve and, and look for opportunities to, as I said earlier, leave things a little better than what they found them when they came onto that call or came into that person's life. Some of your initiatives sound, dare I say, progressive. I mean, not so commonly associated with Southern police chiefs. Neither is apologizing for racial violence. That happened more than 70 years ago. Four years ago, the police chief publicly apologized for the 1940 lynching of a black teenager. An acknowledgement and apology is necessary. He says atoning for the past includes working for a better future. Much of crime is impacted by um, social issues. Now you keep a lot of company with law enforcement peers. You've been a federal monitor for the Civil Rights Division for the U.S. Department of Justice. You sit on and you speak to a lot of boards. So you have a lot of company uh, among your contemporaries. I'm wondering how they respond to the kind of things you're doing in terms of policies to try and keep people from getting jammed up and, and things like the apology for lynching. Mixed. Generally, it was very supportive of those folks that were in the business now. I got the most criticism from uh, individuals that had retired. I think there's, and, and it's not just in policing, it's in, in any profession that there's a hesitancy to uh, admit sometimes that we made a mistake or we did wrong because that admission acts as an indictment when it's been my experience that uh, that admission creates the opportunity for uh, 
uh, understanding, forgiveness, and going forward. And I think that the fact that after that, you saw several other jurisdictions, uh, including New York City, that uh, apologized for things that they did in uh, in the course of, of the 70s as it related to uh, a marginalized community. You're painting a picture of a very idyllic force there, not talking about homicides or violent crimes, that your officers have respect for people regardless of race, regardless of what neighborhood they come from. Do you think this could be the same picture if you were chief of a much bigger city like, you know, Atlanta or Los Angeles or Chicago? Well, each city is different. And, you know, this is surely not Shangri-La. We had the highest number of homicides last year than we've had in the time that I've been police chief. We had 10. We have our fair share of violent crime in gangs. Um, We have a very uh, robust gang unit. Our city supports prosecutors. Uh, We send people to prison that need to go to prison. But the other part of that is, you know, I think the role of the police is almost like a Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. We're hard, we're hard on, on crime. crime. We're, soft. Uh, we're soft on people. I mean, if, if we're able to facilitate a way to address a public safety issue that engages a number of resources, we're prepared to do that. Um, if the only resource that is going to protect the community is locking somebody up, we'll do that too. And so I don't think that it's being one or the other. I think it's a holistic approach to how you uh, deal with public safety issues. You know, we've got a little over 30,000 folks. And I think last year we arrested uh, maybe around 3,000. When we were around 25,000 population, I think we arrested as many as 6,000. So we're seeing arrest rates go down, but 3,000 folks, a lot of folks to arrest. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to leave you with the notion that uh, this is Shangri-La, but it is a good community and it's a good city with the hardworking and caring police officers and more importantly, a community that's engaged with their police. My thanks to Lou Deckmar, Chief of Police for LaGrange, Georgia. Georgia Today is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple. Jess Mador and Jahi Whitehead are producers. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Steve Fennessy will be back with a new episode on Friday. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.